This is a special edition of KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Yeah, a very historic day, needless to say. And, uh, you know, uh, the devil is always, in legal cases, uh, in the details. And the details are contained in uh, a lengthy indictment, along with a statement of fact. Uh, and that's where it becomes even more Interesting. We're going to bring into our discussion here reporter Juliet Papa, who is in New York and uh, covered the uh, court case in Lower Manhattan. Juliet, nice to talk to you again. Yes, likewise, Charles. How are you? Uh, I'm a very dramatic day. Yeah, sure. sure is. Uh, give us a quick scene setter, and then I want to go into a little bit more detail, uh, if we can, about the indictment and the statement of fact. Sure. Uh, first of all, very. Uh, a beautiful day here in New York City. So it brought out so many people, whether they were protesters pro and con outside and there were some pushing and shoving and clashes and even some characters here. And then the president came at 2.30 in the afternoon, literally walked up the middle aisle of the courtroom. We were speculating perhaps he'd come in a side entrance for security reasons, but no, right up the middle of the courtroom. And by the way, this was the courtroom where Harvey Weinstein uh, was tried a couple of years ago. And uh, this courtroom was ringed with court officers. We saw a top brass of the NYPD here for security reasons and their uh, counterintelligence chief here, and also Secret Service. Secret Service was very subtle, as they usually are. They were in sort of the four corners of the courtroom. But once former President Trump walked in, uh, they were everywhere. And he walked up the middle aisle. He looked very tense and very intense. And I also thought he looked kind of glum. He walked slowly, deliberately. And you've seen him at his rallies where he's full of yeah. fire. Uh, but that wasn't the case here. Very, very serious. And he took uh, he was surrounded by his attorneys and he took his seat at the defense table. Let me ask you, Juliet, because uh, you have covered uh, court cases for a long time. I used to cover some of the same ones that you were at. Uh, we both covered Donald Trump years back. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you ever seen anything quite like this at the courthouse? And have you ever seen Trump quite like this today? No. And that's so interesting that you point that out. And, and many of my colleagues here remarked on how uh, serious he looked. At. Now, think of it this way. This man just went through a booking process, a booking process. Now, we do not know if a mugshot was actually taken, but he was fingerprinted. He had to be asked basic questions like any other defendant. And quite frankly, Judge Juan Mershon, uh, near the end, when they were talking about waiving appearances, the defense did ask if at some point uh, the uh, former president can waive an appearance, perhaps uh, for other business reasons or perhaps because he is going to be campaigning. And the judge says, well, you know, I do expect defendants to be in their courtrooms, in the courtrooms for their cases like any other defendant. And he made that very clear, Charles. Uh, hi, this is Rob. Uh, Juliet, can, do you make anything of the fact that uh, we were uh, somewhere expecting him to make some kind of statement? A camera had been set up on the way out of the courtroom because uh, uh, people were told that Donald Trump may make a statement. We were kind of expecting if he did, it would be, you know, uh, Donald Trump's usual bluster, but no bluster today. And as you uh, allude to his demeanor uh, going into the courtroom and in the courtroom, uh, does it surprise you that uh, maybe if he had an idea of making some kind of statement on the way out that he did not? 
Yeah, it's possible that perhaps his attorneys decided uh, this wasn't such a great idea. And it could be because he now understood the seriousness of what was going on. And these are 34 felonies he's being charged with here as well. 34 felonies of falsifying business records. Uh, and also, uh, just the sake of security, you know, when he steps out of his uh his limousine into the DA's uh, office, into the building. Uh, there's all the security in and around. They had frozen zones here in front of the building. Uh, and even when he was entering the courtroom, there was so much security on the floor. There were magnetometers that we had to go through on the first floor and also then again on the 15th floor where the courtroom was located. Uh, they cleared the rest of the building here for the rest of the afternoon. This is a very busy courthouse. Uh, for this purpose. And his attorneys actually were arguing to say, well, you know, because of the expense here and the inconvenience involved, perhaps it's best if he doesn't come. And the judge says, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about that later. Uh, but no, <laughs> we expect the defendant to be here. Juliet, uh, you and I, I'm sure, remember a time when New York, New York City, embraced yes. Donald Trump. He was, you know, uh, if, if not the toast of the town, he was certainly the toast of the front pages of the New York Post. Uh, <laughs> did New York City today embrace him? Uh, you know, it's that's a great question. I would say downtown here where the protests were focused, there was a lot of people uh, out protesting the Trump supporters here. And New York City is a predominantly Democratic town. So I guess uh, they were going to mobilize as well. Yes, there were street closings everywhere because Trump Tower is in midtown Manhattan and that's where he was. But the NYPD does a great job of moving motorcades and moving dignitaries and moving diplomats and heads of state. So they try to do it as minimally as possible. But downtown here in lower Manhattan, uh, there was so much disruption and so many people coming out to see what this was all about. And because the weather was great, people are outside. This was just this massive scene here today, Charles. Uh, Juliet, um, we're trying to uh, make some sense out of uh, the reporting was that the judge admonished all the participants, including Mr. Trump, to not say or post anything on social media that would foment unrest or danger or threats uh, to inflame the situation, as Mr. Trump has been doing on his social media platform all the way up to this, including earlier this morning. Uh, do you think that's going to factor in? to uh, Mr. Trump and his uh, expected statement coming up later on uh, this afternoon in our time. Uh, do you think that he's going to listen to that admonishment? And, and, and if he did, would it be out of character for Mr. Trump to do that? Because this is a man who has never, ever liked to be constrained in any way, shape or form, especially with saying the things he wants to say. Uh, but given that this is the first time he's actually sat down and been criminally charged with a crime, uh, do you think he might just maybe or maybe his lawyer Lawyers will impress on him to take this admonishment to heart in his statements tonight. You know, the judge said he does not and does not feel inclined to impose any kind of gag order. But in fact, I will tell you what he said here. He said, uh, I want people in regarding this case to refrain from making statements that incite violence and civil unrest and conduct that would incite and jeopardize safety and uh, the well-being of individuals and also that will jeopardize any rule of law. He says, I'm making this request. This is not an order. But I think this was a strong suggestion that that's what could or would happen or that he can find 
the defendant or anybody else in contempt if that's the case. So he was letting them know uh, in nice terms, but in no uncertain terms that he could go there if he had to, but he doesn't. So he acts Willie's telling both sides because the defense was citing Michael Cohen saying he comes out and says whatever he wants. He goes on TV and he comes out of the grand jury and he's just saying whatever he wants. Says, you know, the the uh, defendant here has the right to respond. But then the prosecution is countering by saying, well, your honor, here's the picture of Mr. Trump holding a baseball bat that's, you know, aimed at the D.A.'s head. And (laughs) here's where he's calling for death and destruction and World War Three. So, you know, what about that? Julian, so that's, I, how, that's how that went today. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, so I don't know. Did you have a, a chance to read the uh, indictment and statement of fact? I have not. No, we heard it announced in court. I have not had a chance to physically look at it yet because we just got out of the courthouse okay. you know, a few minutes ago. Fair yeah. enough. That, that's why, I want, I, like I said, I didn't want to put you on the spot. But, but I am going to ask you this question because Mr. Trump has indicated that he would like the trial moved to the New York City borough of Staten <laughs> Island. Can you explain yeah. to people who are not New York City residents why he might want to have that happen? Because a lot of people who don't live in New York think, well, isn't it all the same thing? New York City, what's the difference? Manhattan, Staten Island? Not at all. Staten Island is Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For all of your listeners. uh, No, Staten Island is more Republican than any other part of New York City. New York City is a Democratic town. And uh, Staten Island is much more conservative. They elect more conservatives. They elect Republicans. And uh, he would much prefer it there because they welcome him. And in fact, I think in the elections, Staten Island, you know, that that was the candidate they voted for. So it makes sense for him to want it to go there. I don't think it's going to go there. This judge presided over the Trump organization case. And he had the the, uh, Weisselberg case, which was uh, Trump's chief financial officer. And Weisselberg did take a plea. So there was no trial there. So he has a long background in history of how the Trump organization operates. And so that's probably why it's staying here and not going over the Verrazano Bridge. All right. Thank you so much. Your reporter, Juliet Pompa, there on our special edition of Bye, Juliet. Uh, uh, a special edition of KNX In-Depth today. This is interesting for you, Charles, because you were you're a New Yorker yeah. uh, through and through. So you were familiar with all of these areas. Yes. Uh, my experience with New York was visiting for about three or four days a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, so that's my experience. Which of is it. enough for some people. Right. And I was not there for an arraignment. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and, and along with, with Juliet, by the way, uh, I mean, I've known her a long time and we both have covered uh, innumerable cases in that courthouse as well as as federal courts uh but uh yeah i mean just from what i could see on television and listening to uh, julie's uh, uh julia's uh description of what was happening today uh from her vantage point it was a, a truly historic day and not just because it happened to be a former president of the united states but there were all these dynamics that were coming into play that, uh, you know, it's the old thing that if screenwriters sat down a few years ago and tried to sell this to the movie studios, they would have been laughed out of the yeah. gates. It's <laughs> not going to happen. No, they would say, this is so ridiculous. that no. But it's happening. It is happening. And uh, so we are going to do something very interesting here on KNX in Depth. Uh, Everyone deserves their day in court when they're charged with crime. Uh, They have the right to hear the charges against them. Mr. Trump has heard those charges, at least in this case. There are several others coming down the pike. But we want to do something interesting. We want to bring some experts on. 
And what we're going to do is kind of have a, a mock trial of Donald Trump, because we don't know when this case will go to trial or if it will be delayed and delayed and delayed. We have no idea. So we're going to have some experts argue both sides of this case right here on our special edition of KNX In-Depth. Our first guest we want to bring in, as our, our producers work feverishly to get our second guest on, uh, is Manhattan uh, District Attorney's Office uh, from, from that office is Mr. David Katz. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney and currently a criminal defense attorney. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we begin our mock trial today, uh, how are you feeling about the events that you have witnessed well i think that um it was pretty much what we expected uh, except that there were three um different uh, financial transactions that were involved not just uh, stormy daniels everyone expected that but also karen mcdougall uh, they're proceeding with false records regarding her and the catch and kill scheme that trump was involved in along with the um, head of the national Enquirer tabloid and also a doorman who uh they covered up and mischaracterized the payment to him, which was $30,000. Otherwise, he was going to tell a story that Trump had fathered a child out of wedlock. Now, David, let me ask you, because in reading the indictment, the indictment is pretty much uh, strictly confined to the monetary payments and how they were allegedly concealed. The statement of fact that was filed alongside the indictment, however, is what appears to to link these what would otherwise not necessarily be felonies to become felonies because, uh, according to the district attorney, uh, and you're going to argue on the DA's behalf for this, uh, because according to the DA, uh, what Mr. Trump was trying to do was, was affect a change in the election that was then forthcoming by concealing information that would have been detrimental to himself running for president. Is that, is that essentially it? That's fair. That he committed over 30 misdemeanors of making false records, but all of them were boosted up to felonies, according to the district attorney in New York City, um, because they violated New York election law, because they were promoting himself unlawfully uh, to the voting public, that he also covered up uh, the financial caps, you're only allowed to give, let's say, 3000 or $5,000 to a candidate, and then there has to be certain disclosures about it, and that this exceeded the state and the federal caps, and so it got around the reporting requirements and the caps, which is part of you know campaign finance laws, and also that it was with the idea of violating New York state tax law. Whether Trump and his organization went on to violate New York tax law, they say doesn't really matter because it's the intent. And so Trump acted with those three bad intents. Trump acted with those three felonious intents, and that made all 34 what would otherwise be misdemeanors boosted them all up to felonies. All right. So uh, we have our other guests on the line with us, uh, Mr. Trent Copeland. He's going to be arguing on behalf of Mr. Trump. He's a veteran criminal defense attorney specializing in high-profile clients. Before we begin our mock trial of Donald Trump, uh, Mr. Copeland, um, you also witnessed these same events. You saw Mr. Trump uh, walk into the courtroom and a very uh, uh, sober look on his face. He walked in. He sat down. He listened to the charges. He pleaded not guilty. And then he walked out, got on his plane, and he's flying back to Mar-a-Lago. Did Mr. Trump do what you would advise a client to do? You know, I, he did. Um, and for the most part, um, he stayed true to what you would like your um, clients as criminal defendants to do. He stayed quiet. Um, he, there was no showboating, as best we can tell. Um, there was a fist pump as he walked into the courtroom, uh, but not much when he left the courtroom. So from a 
defendant's perspective, from a criminal defendant's lawyer's perspective, we really want our case and our defense to do the talking and not our client or our client's conduct to do so. So, you know, look, and even as we take a step back, let's just examine for a second just how monumental this is. And that is that for the first time, we saw pictures of Trump at counsel table with his lawyers facing a judge behind him. There were there were um, uh, court personnel, marshals who are armed to protect him and to make sure that he didn't leave the courtroom, that he sat there as a criminal defendant for the first time in American history as a former president. So did he do what he was supposed to do? He did, but there were some things he just simply could not avoid, and that was looking the part of a criminal defendant because he was one. All right, uh, Mr. Trent Copeland and also Mr. David Katz going to be uh, joining us for our mock trial of Donald Trump. We will get that underway for you here on KNX to give you a couple of minutes to go tell your legal-minded friends to tune in to KNX, listen on the Odyssey app so that you can hear the trial, the mock trial of Donald Trump on KNX. You are listening to a special edition of KNX in Depth on this uh, historic day, the arraignment of former President Donald Trump in uh, New York. And we are now going to have the mock trial that we we may not see an actual trial for a very, very, very long time, Charles. Uh, no, that's right. Uh, and that uh, as well, we have other potential indictments of Mr. Trump uh, that could be happening in fairly short order, especially uh, in the state of uh, Georgia, because the uh, DA there has indicated already that something is imminent, and we don't know what the uh, definition there is of uh, imminent. Um, let me uh, start off with the uh, our mock prosecutor, so that again would be David Katz. Uh, based on the indictment and the statement of facts, and, and I want the uh, listener to understand the distinction between the two and and also if you could address why the statement of facts uh, are, are, does not list crimes that were actually violated. It's really a, a narrative. Go ahead. Well, I think the statement of facts was issued because the DA is expecting Trump and his minions to try the case in the media day after day and then to argue that when the DA tries to present the DA's side of the story, that uh, he's commenting on things that aren't in the record. So I think he wanted to put in the record the statement of facts it, because it's true. He believes that he can back it up, um, that the grand jury uh, heard those facts, and that he wants to have a basis to, to, or to continue the argument against Trump when Trump says that there's no basis for what he charged him with. Um, but it's a little confusing that there's a bare-bones indictment and then there's a more detailed uh, statement of facts. All right, so uh, let's let that serve as your kind of opening statement there, and let's let's uh, throw it over to Trent Copeland, who is going to be arguing on the behalf of former President Donald Trump, uh, veteran criminal defense attorney himself. Uh, so your response to that uh, more or less opening statement, Mr. Copeland? Well, first of all, let me say this. Um, I, I drew the short straw here arguing on, on behalf of uh, President Trump, but as a um, seasoned criminal defense attorney, I'm going to take that role. And what I would say is this, look, two things. Why the statement of facts doesn't exist as it does in many indictments, particularly here in California, as opposed to in New York, are I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is one, uh, New York law does not require a statement of facts in its indictments. 
And number two, you know, understand indictments can come in two different kinds of flavors. One is the very bland legalistic recitation of the violations of law. That's what you typically would assume. And the other is, a, is what, what we call a speaking indictment. And a speaking indictment comes when the prosecutor can allege that there are other things like conspiracies that animate the case. And because the prosecution did not have conspiracies, although they referenced conspiracies in the indictment, but conspiracies weren't part of the underlying crime, he used this public statement, he used this statement of facts to animate, to give spirit to that indictment. I think David's correct. I think the, the argument for the plaintiff, for the prosecution, is correct that he also wanted to take the opportunity to explain to the viewers, to explain to the American public exactly what this case was about. And he did so with sort of a hybrid speaking indictment, which is what that statement of facts did as an augment. Okay, so so now, Mr. Defense Attorney, can you drive a truck through that? I can absolutely drive a truck through it. And here's why. Because, look, the, at the core of all this is falsifying business records to pay a mistress, whether it's Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal. That is all a misdemeanor, but in typically a misdemeanor in New York. But the prosecutor bumped it up and tried to explain this all through his statement of facts by by making it all a felony and connecting it to the falsification of a business record as it related to finance donation. And then he added tax fraud allegations for good measure. And so, look, we remember sometimes it's the cover up that they would claim is worse than the crime. But in this case, I'm not even sure that the underlying crime is so significant. And Mr. Trump, who is a billionaire, Mr. Trump, who, who is the head of a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar operation, can't specifically know and have the intent to defraud related to issues on $100,000 payments. This just simply can't be the case. And so I think it'll be very difficult to prove intent. Intent is a fundamental element of this crime, and proving that intent might be very difficult, as opposed to simply proving that Mr. Trump tried to cover up an affair. People can understand that. He didn't want his wife to know. This had nothing to do with campaign finance violations, nothing to do with tax fraud. And if it did, he wasn't the person responsible for that. It was Alan Weiselberg who's been convicted of that. All right. Let's go back to our prosecution, uh, playing the part of our prosecutor today, David Katz. Uh, uh, the uh, the argument's been raised that uh, you've got to show intent, that uh, Donald Trump intended this to be part of some effort to uh, help himself win the election by covering up and, and silencing these stories. Your response? Well, I'm a white-collar criminal defense attorney, just like Trent. So, yes, we could have just swapped, you know, um, because that's what good lawyers do, like in moot court and law school. But I do feel strongly that there's a very good case against Trump and that uh, ultimately I believe that he would be convicted. It's the timing and some other things that hurt him. If he just didn't want Melania to find out, if he just didn't want her to say, you're a louse, you're an adulterer, you're no good, you had sex with a woman while I was you know, home with our baby, um, this is terrible. Um, why did he pay uh, Stormy Daniels 10 or 11 days or have Michael Cohn pay him 10 or 11 days before the election? Billionaire or not, he wanted to win. And he knew that after the Access Hollywood tape had come out, it would look just terrible with the electorate. Why did he have this $150,000 that he wanted the National Enquirer to pay? 
It didn't make any sense for the National Enquirer to have a catch and kill. They were going to pay her $150,000 for an exclusive story, and then the Playboy model story would be buried, not published in the tabloid. That is a $150,000 contribution to Trump's election, which is fine, maybe, if you report it. But it wasn't reported. And then later on, this was all covered up as being legal fees. You don't need to be a legal genius. You don't have to study campaign contributions law like Trump's going to say, well, I was real smart, but I didn't know that. He listed it as legal fees when it wasn't legal fees. And so he was preparing to commit tax fraud, whether he committed it or not. He was violating election laws, and he was doing something that is plainly illegal, wrong, and a cover-up in the business records to say it's legal fees when you know it's not 130000 He paid Cohn about $250,000 so Cohn could pay the tax on what everyone knew was not a legal fee. Not only is Cohn going to say that, but the records are going to blow up in Trump's face at a trial. Okay, so uh, this is also directed to our mock prosecutor, David. Uh, most tri- most uh, uh, you know, alleged crimes, as you know, don't ever go to trial. They're, they're settled, uh, plea deals, that sort of thing. Is there a plea deal that you think the Manhattan District Attorney's Office would accept? You know, I think if after Trump, let's say, tried to get the nomination in 2024 and failed, let's say he didn't get the nomination or he lost the election, I think at that point he'd have a strong motive realizing his political career was over to try to get rid of as many of these cases as he could. And there might be a basis for the D.A. to accept some kind of a plea deal. But before 2024, um, you know, Trump is going to wear this as a badge of honor that he was indicted, that it's all political Um, You know, all of this stuff that he says. And so he's going to go down swinging, fighting. He's going to make motions. If I can say one last thing, I used to be worried that there was a statute of limitations problem with this case. And I'm sure that's something that Trent would mention. But in looking at the indictment, the last uh, corrupt record was generated at the end of 2017. Plus, Governor Cuomo, while the statute of limitations had not run, extended the statute of limitations for five or six months in New York law for criminal cases. And so I think they just tucked in. When people say, why did Bragg go with it right now? He tucked in, it looks like, about a month or two before the um, statute of limitations. If these are merely misdemeanors, the statute's blown. Trent, playing the role of uh, Trump's attorney here in our mock trial, Mm -hmm. um, could you convince your client to plead to something, to to settle this so it never goes to trial? Um. In a perfect, ordinary world um, with a ordinary defendant, probably, yeah. But like David suggested, I think Trump will wear this as a badge of honor. Um, I think this indictment will actually be his surrogate running mate for the next 18 months as he moves through the country. And he will talk about it and he will parade it around and he will um, provide anyone who listen with his explanations for why this is politically motivated. I think in response, I think what Trump will also do is he will say, listen, um, this case is built on a house of cards. Alan Weiselberg, who is my accountant, pled guilty to fraud. Um, Michael Cohen, who's this case, who is a central figure to this case, acknowledged publicly that these were not campaign contributions, that he made these payments because these were legal expenses. And Michael Cohen has been convicted of fraud, and he's a convicted felon, and not just on the garden variety felony, but a felony related to lying. 
So if the government is going to rely on trying to establish my client, Mr. Trump's intent through the words and deeds of convicted felons, then I think it's going to be very difficult for them to prove to 12 impartial jurors that Mr. Trump is guilty. What they're relying on is that all 12 of those jurors will see it the same way, but only one juror needs to see it differently, and this case falls apart. All right. That is, uh, uh, sorry, you got to leave it there. That is Trent Copeland, a criminal defense attorney, arguing on behalf of his mock client, uh, Donald Trump, and our our prosecutor, David Katz, also a a former assistant U.S. attorney, currently a criminal defense attorney, arguing on behalf of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office.